All right, we'll go ahead and I'll pray and we'll get started this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, for the way you've uh, blessed us again. Uh, Lord, you've called the sun to rise and it has and uh, you will do it again tomorrow and, and moving forward, Lord, we know that you are in control of all things and you cause all things to happen, Lord. And you've given us your word and you've given us an opportunity. You've set aside a time for us each week when we can gather together, worship you and learn from you and enjoy you, Lord. I pray that this would be a time of enjoyment, that this would be a time of just sitting back and learning about you and just soaking in uh, the goodness of your love towards your people as we continue to see the the acts of kindness that you have given to the people of Israel. And Lord, the, uh, that we would uh, see in ourselves their own flaws and their own shortcomings, Lord, that we would see that you are a God who loves even people like us who fail and, and often are not worthy. Thank you for all you give, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. We're going to try and, and get through, we'll see how far we get, we'll try and get through uh, the rest of uh, the story of Jacob. And actually, this Jacob is going to come back in. Jacob's going to survive till nearly the end of Genesis. Um, and we're going to at least have the, the background of uh, Joseph set up, hopefully for next week. So we're in chapter 34. And just by way of review, we have that at the very beginning of Genesis, we have Adam and Eve, and Adam, as literally our representative, failing and falling short of what God wants of him and disobeying and that separation that takes place there in Genesis 3, and then moving forward, looking forward to a seed. And we see that it focuses on one single line of, of people one single son comes out and eventually goes from Adam to Noah. And Noah then is the one that the hope is in. Uh, at that time, God destroys the whole earth because of the sinful wickedness of the people. And then the line is carried on through Moses or Noah's son in Shem. Shem then, that line carries forward and we're introduced to this character, Abraham. And almost as if God is trying to emphasize these are individuals' lives that I'm working towards in a single line to the promised seed, we have Abraham having one son who is the promised son, Isaac. Isaac having one son who is the promise that the promise will come through in Jacob. And now we see a transition here where we have, from working with one individual in each generation, we now have... 11 at this point sons and one daughter that God is now working through. And so we see here in this these uh, chapter basically 32 on that God is now working with an entire group of people. He's not working just in a single line. In fact, knowing what we know as we move ahead, Christ comes through which tribe? Judah. Yeah, so not even the oldest son, which isn't totally out of the ordinary for God because Ishmael was older than Isaac and, and Esau was older than Jacob. But we see, is there any way I can have light? <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> so we see that, 
I don't see, but you guys see. I guess if I keep on glad, that's better for me, hopefully. No, that's, that's just fine. Um, we see that, that God now is working through a group of people, and that group of people is established. In fact, he doesn't even choose the oldest of his sons here. He doesn't even choose the oldest of uh, Rachel, but he actually chooses, as we know later, he's going to choose Judah is who the line is going to come through, who the promised son is going to come through. And so, as we cover this story, or this part of the story, understand that we're now dealing with the introduction of a group of people God is working with, the people of Israel. And we touched on it briefly, and it's going to be brought up again, that Jacob is renamed Israel, which means what? Does anyone remember what Israel means? Strives with God, or contends with God. That is a loaded phrase, because... How many people want to contend with God? It's like, that's not a good thing, right? Isn't that a bad name to be called that he contends with God? And yet it's not only his name, but it's the whole people. And yet it also carries with it a positive aspect for how many people contend with God and walk away with a limp, right? You would expect that if I'm going to contend with God, I'm going to have more done to me to mark that that happened like a little grease spot left on the floor than just a hip that's a little bit out of joint. And so it, it almost is, is this, this promise of God to these people that I am going to contend with you. And that's actually a positive promise, I think, where God is saying that moving forward, you as a group of people, Jacob, you are over the people group of, you are the father of all Israel. You're going to have that name. And that name means I am going to be working against and with and, and in conjunction with you, you are my special project moving forward. There's a blessing that's in, that is given in that. In fact, it's given during a time of where Jacob is demanding being blessed, and God does, in fact, bless him. We're going to see that today. We're going to see what these people are like that God has chosen for him to be his people. So uh, 34, let's start there, 34 verse 1. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved. And they were very angry because they had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. So we see here that Shechem forces himself on Dinah. He forcibly rapes her. His emotional and physical attraction overcome proper judgment. Overcome his morality, and take hold. And the consequences are going to be very intense for he and his family. So Shechem goes and tells his father to get her for him. 
It is interesting. It's almost a command that he gives his own father. Get me this young girl for a wife. It's really a picture of not only the type of man he was, but a view of how that culture of the Hivites was so depraved from the top down where you have the son of one of the main leaders of this group of people is demanding of his father, do this for me now. Those of you who have children know the strange sound when they demand something of you and it just hits you. Just It's like, what, what was that? Not, that? not that my boys have ever done that. But, but it just strikes you as being, this is not right, but that's what we're seeing here. And so it's, I think it's a, it's a sign of how depraved this society was that they were parked right next to Jacob and his family. Children acting out their desires and disrespecting their parents. It's a reminder, I think, to the people that were hearing this of the depravity that was present in the land of Canaan as, as those people are ready to enter the land, as they're getting ready in the time of Moses to come into the land. I think this story is, is a reminder in that. But I think it's also an interesting story if you go back to Jacob arriving at the well. So when Jacob flees his brother and ends up meeting Rachel, if you contrast that story with this one, we still have a young man who meets a young lady from a distant land and immediately falls in love with her and immediately has affection to her. But the, that's about where the story similarity ends. We see that in that first story with Jacob that he's there because his mother has sent him. Not dissimilar to his own father having Eliezer sent because Abraham wants him to have a specific type of woman to be his, his wife and understands the importance. He's under the, the guidance of his parents and here we see that's completely thrown out the window. We see an honoring of the parents with Jacob that we don't see here with Shechem. And we see that, that in Jacob's case, there is truly a delayed gratification. It's, I really love her, want her for my wife. How many years do I have to work for this? And it's seven. Turns out to be another seven. And here we're seeing the desire for immediate gratification is present. The dishonoring of parents the desire for immediate gratification, and the willingness to sin horribly in order to get it. I think those two stories stand in direct contrast, and it, 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 um, we're going to see that, that Jacob's sons aren't exactly innocent of this response to their own emotions. And then we see this response of Jacob, and, and I don't know what to take of it, but I, I think that Jacob... While somebody who goes through life and tries to get along with everyone around him is showing a little bit of that, but he's also very measured in his response. He's very careful in how he's going to respond. Unlike his, unlike his own children are going to. Jacob hears what has happened, but the fact that his sons aren't there with him He's, he's waiting for his response. And that gives us an opportunity to remember 
who we're dealing with here. Jacob's sons aren't from third grade up to 10th grade in high school, right? These are grown men, or, or most of them are grown men. Grown men who could fend for themselves, grown men who could provide for themselves. They're still living under their father's, not necessarily in the same, same tent, but living there with their father, and he would be like a tribal leader over them, so he would, they would be under his authority, and they would be submitting to him. But at the same time, they're grown men who can act on their own. And so Jacob is waiting, it appears, till they come back in so they can have a discussion of what's taken place. And the response of Dinah's brothers, I think those of you who are girls and have had brothers or have brothers uh, know there's a certain idea of protection that comes with that. Certainly growing up, I knew if I dated a girl, I would have to answer to her brothers in the way I treated and we're seeing that is, isn't just in our culture, that's in all cultures. There's a certain idea that you protect those who are your own here. And, and these men, I think, are struck by the severity of what has happened, but they don't necessarily respond in the right proportion of what they should. Then finally, in this, what I do want to point out is a very interesting phrase that this is a disgraceful thing in Israel, for such a thing ought not to be done. Why is it weird that that statement's in there? That it's a disgraceful thing in Israel? Because maybe it's not disgraceful somewhere else. Okay. What, so by saying there's a somewhere else, you're saying there's a place called? The rest of the world. Okay, there's the rest of the world versus? Israel. Israel. Where's Israel? Not yet. <laughs> there's the issue, right? So... This is going to get brought up later as well. And the problem is that it's, I'm sorry, I didn't mute my, where is he at? He's at Rick Holland's church Holland's church in, in Kansas City this weekend. So I'm sure he's telling me all about the experience. Okay. So anyway, so we have this place, Israel, where these things ought not to be done. Israel doesn't exist. Here it is in Genesis. Now, it, could very well be that the idea of Israel is the, group, the people group here. Jacob, his servants, his children, um, and all that they own, that that's being referred to. There's also an idea here, and I don't want to totally discount it, that this is a comment in the earlier manuscripts that they found that got inserted into the text when really it's almost like a comment in the margin. Almost like if, have you ever wondered what would happen if 500 years from now, all they found were uh, the, the main Bible that survived was a MacArthur study Bible. Let's just pretend that happens. How would they figure out if they speak a different language and don't know ours, which is MacArthur's notes and which is like, true word of God text. And, and so th- that thought needs to, I think, enter your mind. But in doing so, it doesn't change the overall text of what, the, what is being communicated here to us. So well, the book is also being written after Israel's established. Is it? When is this given? Moses. Moses. So is there a place called Israel yet? 
So we're back to the idea that this is referring to a people of Israel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so my response to those that say, well, this is a commenter's note that's there is that, okay, even if that is true, we haven't lost anything here. Um, there's still the idea that it's a disgraceful thing. Um, but the, I don't think it punches a hole in, boy, there's something off in your Bible because this is noted and therefore this couldn't have been written back in Moses's day referring to a time previous. It must have been written at a later date because of something like this. Yeah, exactly. Um, so just one of those, I just wanted to touch on that because hopefully you're learning as we walk through here how to read these things and get these things out for yourself and how to deal with some of those issues when they come up. So verse 8, the hammer spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give, him to, give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us. Or give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open for you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you ask to me. Or whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift and I will give according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. So we have this idea of Hamar wants to take advantage. We're going to find out that their idea is that this is how we take advantage of these people living near us. Shechem gets what, and and in exchange for Dinah, what he's proposing is that Shechem gets what he wants. He gets Dinah. Our families will blend together. You'll have access to the land, the trading, and the buying of property and everything. Just name your price, but, but in the end... Your daughter is going to marry into our family. Now again, the, the, this is just a little story here in chapter 34 about Jacob and his sons. But put it in the context of when this was given. And you can see the importance here because one of the commands of God was you're not going to go into the promised land and marry the people and do business with them and, and blend in with them. You are going to be totally separate from them. In fact... We've already covered that one of the ways you're totally separate from them is you're circumcised and they're not. So we see this, this idea of the, the temptation to blend with the people of the land is already being given here by Moses in the lives of, as he recounts the story of the lives of Jacob and his sons and Shechem and his father. There's that temptation to have access to the land and do it the easy way by intermarrying and trading and buying of property. But that's not what God was asking the people in Moses' day to do. They had a different, a different job was before them. They were to take the land the way God wanted them to. And so I think that's part of the reason that this is in here as well. So then we have verses 13 through 17. Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father, Hamor with deceit because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. 
only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and go. So here they hatch the plot. Now it just says Jacob's sons answered. Jacob's sons are the 11 all the way down to Joseph are the ones that are involved in this. Now, whether Joseph is involved in this plot, we do not know, but we're given an insight of the character of the sons of Jacob. What were they like and what type of people were they? And it maybe isn't a good thing. So we see here that they've hatched this plot to take advantage of their circumcision laws, laws that were intended for keeping their people separate. And they're going to use that idea. We're supposed to be separate. So if you want to be separate with us, which doesn't make sense, if you want to be separated with us, then you've got to go through this circumcision and then we can all get along and we'll all be happy and this will work great. Not asking anything of value from them, no monetary gain, no land or anything like that. No, we, you know, give us one daughter and we get each a daughter for ourselves. Nothing like that. They come up with this relatively simple solution. But it is a reminder that circumcision was meant for separation, not for integration. God did not call us to be separate from the world around us by taking what is ours and feeding it to the world. And if the world will just do X, Y, and Z like we do, then we can all get along. Instead, the idea of circumcision of the heart is that here are ways God intends us to be different from the world. And we invite the world to separate themselves as well to a holy God, not to take these things that we find valuable. And if you'll add X, Y, and Z to your worship, you add X, Y, and Z to your philosophy and allow some of our ideas to infiltrate your ideas, then we can get along and we can all be one. And that's not how God works. You can apply that to whether it be church or philosophy or um, some of the ideas in politics and, and some of the rest of the things in your own life where there's a temptation that if something has a little bit of God in it, then it must be okay and it allows me to be part of that as well because isn't it better if we all just get along? What is interesting is, is Jacob's sons, I think, show that they understand that's not what circumcision is about because they're going to use it to, to really separate themselves from these people. So, verse 18 then, we see the thoughts then on the other side as Jacob's sons set this plot in motion, the other side, now their words seemed reasonable to Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. And that's where I get to the idea that this is a, this is a sign that the whole society here was debased. The most respected man in all the household of one of the great leaders of the Hivites is a rapist who has no idea of how to have delayed satisfaction or, or gratification as well as a general scoundrel. So Hamar and his son 
Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let, them, let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamar and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So all who were involved in this community that would come and go were actually the ones that are involved. So this is a large number of people involved. But we do see um, in verse 19, the young man did not delay to do the thing. He's like, absolutely, I'm, we're there, we're going to go do it. So again, just the type of, of person he is. And we also see that Hamar himself is motivated by lust and greed. He, he sees what will happen if there's integration with the people of Israel. And basically it is, we'll just keep on going and everything they have will become ours. They'll become one with us. He does make almost a prophetic comment there about, um, in verse 21 there, the land is large enough for them. And that's kind of a funny statement for him to make in light of what's about to happen more than 400 years later as they're about to enter the land and take the land. The land is, in fact, large enough for them. So name the price. They name the price. They think it's fair and they're going to go ahead and they go ahead and do this thing. The people respect this excuse of a man because the whole people are depraved. Everyone goes along. And whenever you see that in the stories of Scripture, and we're going to see it here in a little bit as well, this idea that everyone goes along, everyone decides this is a good idea. Let's, let's do this. Everyone is going to go along with this. Understand that is often the hand of God who's working in the hearts of individuals and causing things to take place. So I think what we're, what we're seeing here is we see that everyone's going along. Everyone who goes in and out of this city is going along with this idea. It is almost the idea, or is the idea, that God has now released them to their desires. They've expressed the desire if they want. They've like, yep, going to do it. I know the cost. I'm going to do it anyway. This is a bad thing. We're going to do it. And God says, okay, all of you do it then. And we see that everyone goes along with this. So I believe we're seeing the hand of God here judging the Hivites. Now that's not to say what's about to happen here is God being the one who goes and slaughters people. But God is judging the Hivites, a depraved society where the the most honored of them is a scoundrel. And God is about to judge them and he's going to judge them using this overproportioned response of the people of Israel, of the sons of Jacob. Not saying that, that God does evil or that Jacob's sons are justified in what they're about to do only that God is judging a people by allowing them to pursue something so wholeheartedly that is wrong, that God does not want to have happen, and God is the one who's going to judge them, even to the point where he allows them the desires of their heart to get to it. Just remember that the desires of your heart, if it's not in line with God, very often God will allow you to have those things, and judgment will follow. But it'll all work out in the plan of what God has. So verse 25, now it came about on that third day when they were in pain 
And I can tell you from a medical perspective that it is day three and four are the worst when you have a major injury. Um, when you blow out your back, day three and four are usually the ones that are the most tender. When you're in a car accident, that neck really doesn't start hurting real bad till day three or four. So three days out, they're in a lot of pain. Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Levi, who would go on to be the father of the tribe that are the priests. So again, not, not a very good start here. But Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city. So this is the rest of the sons come in and they loot the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. And this should, this should let you, your mind, for those of you that know your Bible, should be jumping forward to the conquest of the Canaanites. Some of the things that actually happened there were entire cities would be overwhelmed by the Israelites. And depending on the word of God, everything would either be burned or, or be given as a gift. But what we're not seeing here is that God is involved in any of this decision making. That God is telling them that this is how you do this to take these people. Instead, God is in this instance allowing this to take place for his own purposes and his own divine judgment and his own divine uh, providence moving things forward, which should make you jump to the life of Joseph and what's going to happen to him. So Jacob's, uh, they come upon the slain, they loot the city, they capture, they take all their wealth and their, their wives and children. And then Jacob, who's unaware of this, was going to happen, says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? So we see Jacob has an understanding and I would, I would be hesitant to say that Jacob here is acting in a way that lacks faith that God is going to protect him more than he's responding to the fact that his children weren't thinking this through. And he's telling them, this is the result that can take place because of your actions. You put all of us at risk. We aren't that big of a people. And you went and slaughtered an entire town's men and stole their stuff. But more specifically here, you slaughtered an entire town's men and they're going to come and they're going to destroy us and we can't stop them from doing that. There's a truth in all of that. So I wouldn't say that he's necessarily lost faith that God will provide and keep them around and give them the land someday. I'd say instead he's pointing out to his sons exactly what has taken place here and, and why what they've done is so foolish. It is interesting that their response is one of the morality of the issue and judgment for what Shechem has done. And there's no argument on the part of Jacob. It's a, it's a tough thing to work through as you look and see what exactly all happened there. 
We see Simeon and Levi kill off the men of the land, and the rest of the boys plunder everything they have. Now, again, Jacob's sons here are grown up, grown men for the, for the most part, or young men for the most part. They, they are part of, the, again, the family group, but they are able to make their own decisions, as is clear here. We don't know how much Joseph is involved, but we do get this picture of what type of men Joseph's older brothers were. I would, I would say the implication is that Joseph, being younger, is not involved here. And that we're just getting a picture of the type of men that are going to sell their brother into slavery. It is interesting the Levi's involved. As I said, he's going to go on and father the line that will become the tribe of priests. The men set apart to God specifically. But at the outset here, this is a very rough and murderous group of men that are the sons of Jacob. Chapter 35 then, then God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. You'll remember the, the angels going up and down the staircase or Jacob's ladder that he saw in the dream where God promised him to bring him back to the land and establish him there. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let's arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. We see here almost a refocus on the part of Jacob on after this incident of They kind of have to move. They do have to move because the people of the land are not going to be kind to them here if they stay and may even attack and kill them. So this is almost as though he's fleeing again. And the pressure of everything going on around him and what just took place puts him in sharp focus on what uh, he needs to do, and that is to rely totally upon God. But it isn't Jacob turning to God here that, that sparks this. It's actually God coming to Jacob and telling him, how to react and and how to move forward and Jacob listening. It's that that pricking of our hearts that tells us that we need to respond to God is where it always starts. It doesn't start within our own hearts. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. But instead, it's when God steps up and says, this is what I want you to do now. And God is giving him the grace of, of instructions of how to move forward and what the next steps are. Jacob responds in faith appropriately by getting everyone together. Not only that, but recognizing, and this part should take you by a little bit of shock, put away the foreign gods. Wait, there's foreign gods. You guys have foreign gods that you know about, Jacob, and your sons and your, your daughter and your wives have these foreign gods among you. And Jacob's like, we're done here. We're not playing around anymore. God called me way back then with the dream about the ladder. And now, you know, every time, and then I wrestled with him when I came back. And now again, he's calling me to, to refocus. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And that's what we're seeing here is Jacob is being called back to get things in order. And he responds in faith and he does so. So put away your gods, purify yourselves, arise, get up and go. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had 
and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. I think probably not only out of respect, but out of fear of what was about to take place if they didn't go along with Jacob and didn't take the path that God had set before them. I think it was very real when Jacob said they will come and slay all of us if we don't respond appropriately here, if we don't get out of here. And then we see again this idea as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So again, when you see an entire population of people or group of people all start thinking the same thing, and that is, we're scared of Jacob. We're scared of his, his camp of people. Even though they're few in number, they're terrified of them. It's the hand of God allowing people's emotions to run free to accomplish his goals. So twice we've seen that now in this, these two chapters. God is at work in the hearts and minds of those involved with his people. So Jacob came to Luz at his Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak and it was named Alan Bakuth. So they arrived where they needed to go. They arrived there and the story continues. Now we have a, uh, the incidents here in, in, of uh, God appearing to Jacob again here. And it is kind of a repeat, which shouldn't take us by too much surprise, because when God met with Abraham and promised him on a couple of different occasions, those covenant promises appear to be very similar situations. And here we see a very similar situation. We see God appearing to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and he blessed him. Now that journey was fleeing from Laban. And so there's going to be kind of a blending here. And I... I I think it's a difficult thing to work through, but let me just read through this. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he had came from Paddan Aram and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. And again, I tie that to the idea at the end of verse 9. This is a blessing that he just received, the new name. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and the kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I'll give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob name the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So I think we're seeing here is a repeat of the promises in a very similar situation, even a repeating of the renaming him Israel. In this situation, we're not seeing any wrestling going on. There's no hip injury going on. This is God calling Jacob and reinstituting the promises that he has given him. That's how I would take all that. Another memorial is built. And then in verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. And 
When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for now you have another son. Came about as her soul was departing, for she died that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, and that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched a tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So we have here the, the birth of Benjamin, Rachel's second son. And, and Rachel's, you remember when Rachel had Joseph, what her response to the birth of Joseph was? Back in chapter 30, she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Rachel gets what she wants here. Rachel, in the response of God giving her a son, which she prayed for and had a bad attitude about, as we covered back then, God now does give her another son, and that son results in her death. The birth of that son results in her death. Um... To the, to the point that uh, she names him Ben-Onai, which means, if you look in the margin of your Bible, the son of my sorrow. Jacob, on the other hand, says, Mm-mm. I don't know if he waits for her to die. <laughs> I suspect he does. He's not an idiot. Um, he says, no, his name is going to be called Benjamin. And what does Benjamin mean? Son of the right hand. What is that? What does that sound like? If you, if you named one of your sons my right hand man, and he was son number 12, and you, let's say uh, the oldest son, what would his response be? Or the second son, or the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what am I? I'm out here taking care of your sheep and doing all this stuff and you just have this one and he's, he's the son of my right hand. He's the one that's going to carry everything out for me and forward for me. And we see that relationship already, Jacob, and his love, not only of Rachel, but of her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And it gives you an idea of later when, when Joseph is, is uh, requesting, when Joseph knows there's a son, miss, a brother missing, he goes, don't you have another brother? And they're like, oh, don't tell him that because this will kill dad. This is a relationship. This is already starting there where, where the relationship, yes, Joseph was the favorite, which to be honest, I don't think he was involved in killing a whole group of people over the rape of, their do- of his sister. Um, so maybe there's some things about Joseph that were appealing, but still, the idea here is that Joseph may have been the favorite, but Benjamin is also very special. Not only was he one of Rachel's, but he was the son that was born when he lost Rachel. And there would be that firm connection that we're seeing set up in the mind of Jacob. And he does set up a pillar. And that pillar is a reminder uh, that's present even at the time when Genesis was was codified. Even as at the time when Moses gave uh, the book of Genesis to the people, Rachel's pillar was still existing to that day. 
So probably a, uh, an impressive monument. And I accidentally jumped ahead and read verse 22. 22 probably belongs with the rest of this. As if to say, it's not bad enough that they're an impetuous group of murderers. But, oh, by the way, Reuben slept with his father's, one of his father's wives. And finds out about it. And again, we don't see any response here. And, and uh, that goes with the character of Jacob. It's very rare that people change. Now, there were 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These were... These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paden Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man ripe of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. They do go out of their way to point out, in case you forgot, um, Isaac is still alive in all this, but he's not living with them. And we knew that, that Esau is living in the land of Seir, or the mountain Seir, the hill country of Seir. Um, so he's not living with his father Isaac either. They have separated out. And if you remember, Isaac had tremendous wealth and certainly there's the idea that could, could they all live together in one group? Probably not. And that's probably one of the reasons Esau moved. But we also see that uh, there isn't that tight relationship. But Genesis, as is one of the themes, comes back to the death of somebody and reminds us that death is still occurring. We're still marching forward. That, that the timeline of the world is linear and it has a beginning and it has an end. And certainly Isaac here has his end. But we see Jacob coming to his father, and so Jacob goes and visits his father Isaac, which would have been weird. Isaac would not have seen his 12 grandsons until this point that we know of. Um, but we also see that Esau uh, shows up for the funeral as well. We see that Isaac lives a full 180 years. And then we have that term gathered to his people. Beautiful term there. And he lives basically a full life. So Rachel is, has died. Deborah has died. Isaac has died. A whole town of the men of the whole town of people has died. Lots of death going on here as we're moving forward. And, and it seems to mark the birth of the tribes of Israel. An auspicious beginning to say the least. In contrast with them then, and I think that's what this next chapter is doing here. The, the contrast of the birth of this people of Israel in the 12 tribes now all being present compared to the descendants of Esau. And I would, I would hesitate to say that this is all happening along a timeline where Isaac 
dies and now Esau moves. We know that's not the case because Esau came from Seir to meet his brother. So this is not chronological over the top of or, or following the stories we just got done reading this morning. But this is instead what happened along the lines of Esau. And so if we start there in verse 1, now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. If you remember, Esau means red, Edom, because Esau was covered with red hair. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. You'll remember he did that in opposition to his parents, Ada and the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Ohilabamah, the daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Basemeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemeth bore Ruel, and Ohilbah bore Jesua and Jalem and Korah. These are the sons of Esau that were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together in the land where they sojourned, could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is part of the, the, the travels through the wilderness for the people of Israel in Moses' day. They would know these names and they would know, they'd know the name Korah. They would know uh, they'd been in the hill country of Edom and their understanding that this is where this has all come from. And then we see these descendants of Esau, the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites from the hill country of Seir. And then we have the names, and I'm going to save you from me reading the names of all of them. I encourage you to do so. Um, And so it talks about all these, and then we get down to verse 15, we see the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Uh, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chief Temin, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz. And if you remember, there were 12 sons. And then we go, um, who descended from these chiefs? And it just keeps marking on, marching on. And um, then in verse 20, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Loden and Shobal and Zibion and Anna and Dishon and Ezar and Dishon. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And then it goes through some of their sons. And then what becomes interesting is, because it, again, imagine that they, these are all people groups that the people of Israel, as they're hearing this, have marched through and they now understand that they're related in some way back 400 years prior. Now these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. So we're going to contrast the kings of the land of Edom with the kings uh, or with uh, Israel and what it has. And again, we're stuck with this interesting comment there that there's that's before the political government of Israel is set up and if you take that as being prophetic it fits here even in the time of Moses there certainly are no kings over Israel and the establishment of a king other than God himself was not to be allowed or was not not to be done it was allowed but was not to be done So it's an interesting note to find it here in 31 and and we can discuss that and how it fits. But 
I'm going to keep moving on. Uh, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of the city was Dinhaba. Then Bela died, and Johab, the son of Zerah, of Basra, became king in his place. So just note here that when one king dies in his little city, another king who's not his son becomes the king in a different city. And so we're seeing that this is almost as though um, there is no perpetual line in the, in the land of Esau, in the land of Edom. We're not seeing that there is a line marching its way through. So it contrasts with Israel in that regard. It certainly contrasts with the patriarchs that we've seen from, from Abraham to Jacob. And, but it is that, again, in the book of Genesis, we see people die and somebody takes their place. People die and somebody else moves along and then they die and the death just continues. It fits most closely with what happened in the northern kingdom. If you, if you remember, <clears throat> the southern kingdom would have been uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin around Jerusalem itself. And then the other tribes would have been the northern kingdom and they would have been out on their own. But their kings would die and another family would come in and take the place. And there was no perpetual line. Occasionally you would see a son take the throne, but generally speaking, it fixed this picture of what was happening. Certainly fits the picture of what was happening as we were studying Daniel but with Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings where another line would come in. You may have it one descendant who, who ascends to the throne, but then somebody comes and knocks them off. And, and that's what we're seeing here. It's a picture of how the world it works outside of what's going to take place in Israel. And that gets us all the way to the end of the chapter. So just understand that, again, this is written to a group of people who are about to enter the land. They've been through the land here of the, of the Edomites, so they understand that. Um, but they also now are being given a picture of who they are, that they are not a group of people that were descendants of some great godly men. Instead, they're the descendants of, of murderers and thieves. Um, even the best of the tribes can't claim purity here. Even Joseph himself won't be great in regards to his own behavior all the time. We're seeing things set up, what's going to happen with, with Joseph and with Benjamin coming in the future and we also see the idea of how God expects you to interact with those around you and the differences he expects not only with the people of Shechem, but also comparing with the descendants of Esau. But it all still marches forward. God has a plan. His hand is over it. He doesn't cause these things to happen. He allows a lot of these people to do terrible things, but he uses their actions in order to achieve his ends. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much again for your word. We thank you now that we have an opportunity to uh, encourage one another through singing, through prayer, and through the proclamation of your word. I pray that uh, you would keep our minds focused here for a couple more hours, that we might uh, glean all the good that you have in it for us. In your son's name, amen.